I have dedicated this paper to um, a colleague I've known her since she was 11 or 12, Omari. She's here on the picture. And maybe it doesn't mean very much to you, but for those who have some knowledge of Latin America, Omari has been made Woman of the Year in Ecuador, and that is big news. It means that a tribe that is often treated as being a Stone Age, savages, etc., etc., in the national press, etc., etc., killers and ignorant, etc., etc., you know, a country that is making huge uh, intellectual moves, such as having a new constitution, the first constitution in the world to uh, give rights to nature, have recognized Omari for her work. And her work is very much as an ethnobotanist, because when I knew Omari, she wanted to continue to go to school. She was 11 and 12, but the teachers wouldn't let her, saying that girls just get pregnant and they get married and it's wasting money on them. You know, scholarship shouldn't go on girls. So she went to the jungle town not too far from her territory. Fortunately, at that time, a couple of French uh, biologists were organizing a park, um, a, a reserve area, a park which has an extraordinary story, which I am also documenting at the moment. And it's working with this French uh, scientist that Omari just loved, you know, learning and continued to work in the park for about 10 years. And then she became the president of the Women's Association, the Warrenie Women's Association. So having said that, let me go back to Claude Lévi-Strauss and to that little book. So I don't know how many of you know this book and understand the title. Untamed Thoughts is a literal translation from the French. In French, is La Pensée Sauvage. And in English, it was translated as a savage mind. Now, anyone has any idea why it was called La Pensée Sauvage in French? Anyone who knows the pun behind the title? Uh, it has to do with the drawing or the photograph here. This is a pansy, and it's a wild pansy. So the title means both a, a wild pansy, a plant, a flower, and untamed thought. Now, while it was translated as savage mind in English, that's another story to be told. But before I start the lecture, I just want to do an impromptu survey I know we have to be very gifted in quantitative data as well as in qualitative data. <laughs> this is not going to be a very objective survey, but let's still have a little try. Who has heard of the ontological turn in anthropology? Just shows of hands here. My goodness, this is Oxford. Doesn't seem to have come to Oxford yet. All right. Who is familiar with science of the concrete? Right, it's uh, a little bit less in interesting. I'll have to keep doing these surveys as I'm giving this seminar. Um, I'm going to give this seminar about three or four times this term. So I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll compute all this information and we'll let you know. Who has read The Savage Mind then? Good. 
Who is reading Claude Lévi-Strauss? I just want students' hand there. Who is a student? Oh my goodness, two students, all right. Uh, who is still teaching Claude Lévi-Strauss? And here I want to see some hands. Good, oh my gosh, yes. Well, it's more than I thought, so it's quite encouraging. Who thinks that Savage Man should be a compulsory reading for human scientists? Hmm, interesting. I mean, it, I, why human scientists? It's because I used to teach it to human scientists. And until I, for some reasons, I was not able to teach anymore on this course, but uh, it could apply to other kinds, of course, of teaching. Now, I'm not going to give you a lecture on this little book. Um, uh, I'm not going to lecture on it, uh, although I could if you wanted to, but that would have to be at another time. Everything I'm going to talk about is totally related theoretically, to what is in the first two or three chapters of the book. I mean, usually when people read this book now, they tend to, you know, read the, the chapters on history and on sacrifice rather than on classification of nature. But um, everything I'm going to say has to do with uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss' work and also with the critiques that are coming of his work now, especially in the ontologist quarters, um, but I will keep to empirical data, and I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to read this part. I'm going to read about doing fieldwork on fieldwork. I have three examples, and I will, after that, summarize the theoretical discussion, because it's too boring on a Friday afternoon to read you the theory behind the examples, but hopefully the examples are entertaining enough for you to not fall asleep. <laughs> okay. So I start with the, the first one on Warani plant naming. So the Warani are the people um, whose tribe uh, Omarima belongs to. Yeah? The purpose of the Ecuadorian scientists who collected Warani plant names was primarily to document biodiversity. Yes, I forgot to tell you that basically fieldwork on fieldwork is me as an anthropologist doing fieldwork on a natural scientist doing fieldwork with the people with whom I was doing fieldwork. And I just have <laughs> three examples of that over the years. I never thought about analyzing that, but now I'm trying to analyze it a bit more systematically. Rather than motivated by a genuine interest in Warani ways of knowing nature, the study was designed to survey rigorously and measure quantitatively species richness in a particular Andean foothill region. Warani consultants were initially asked to name plant species that the scientists had already inventoried so that the latter could quantify how much of the rainforest the Warani use. Despite obvious methodological shortcomings, the study was based on data collected in the field that is working in the forest with Warani collaborators. Moreover, the research team, which had already done ethnobotechnical surveys in, with other indigenous groups in Ecuador, used their previous knowledge to focus on what was different in Warani ways of using and aiming plants. I did not observe or participate in the survey directly, 
but was nevertheless able to reconstruct some of the interactions between participants through informal conversations, interviews, and subsequent research on published and unpublished materials. I also witnessed one of the first field visits by Ecuadorian biologists, which gave me an opportunity to observe intercultural interactions, hear the gossip, and converse with the scientists about the progress of their research and with some of the Warani who participated in the biodiversity count. Finally, and out of sheer curiosity, I also tried out two experimental methods of the kind routinely used by ethnobotanists during a field trip in 1997. The first thing that struck me during my brief overlap with a team of natural scientists was the treatment they received from my Warani friends and collaborators, some of which I could recognize as being similar to the issues I had myself faced, such as motivation and availability. Individuals hired for the survey only worked when they felt likely, regardless of whether they had been paid or formally contracted. The best results were obtained from those with whom a relation of friendship and mutual appreciation had developed, which often implied material exchanges and social interactions that went beyond the mere contractual relation. Notable differences, however, surfaced as well, and these made me much more aware of how discriminating the perception of the outside world actually is. If I was a white foreigner, there were nationals living in the capital city with whom relatedness came accompanied with a, a mutual recognition of differentiated citizenship. One aspect of their fieldwork methodology, the use of sampling and experimental plots and transacts, departed more radically from ethnographic fieldwork. This was a method, however, that the Warani were only too keen to participate in. My own attempts to organize fieldwork experiments confirmed that adults and children enjoyed participating in such games, and that's how they called it in their own language. This enthusiasm for the plant trail and the free listing exercise, I was asked to repeat it on, sec on successive days, made me aware of the fact that some of my field inquiries over the years had been much easier than others. While I often struggled to get someone to help me collect stories about shamanism or to transcribe myths and chants, I had no difficulty in finding people willing to show me how to prepare a plantation or to explain the specific uses of particular plants. With fieldwork well underway, and although their initial purpose had not been to study the specificities of an indigenous ethno-classificatory system, Ceron, Montalvo, and their team became increasingly interested in the Warani way of identifying plants, as well as in the remarkable depth and salience of their ecological knowledge. Little of this transpires in the final written product, which bears the unmistakable marks of modern scientific knowledge construction. It's a whole book which I could have brought and I forgot. The text, constructed as an inventory of useful plants named in both native and scientific language, is illustrated with drawings of leaves, flowers, and seeds. Although Ceron and Montalvo's ethnobotanics study does little more than listing Warani names for 625 plants, 
matching these with scientific names and cataloging their use, it nevertheless recalls the fact that name variation is high. Whereas if no botanist would have eliminated the noise, the botanist kept all synonyms and alternative spellings for the same plant name, recording the different orthographies being used. They did so, they told me, to prevent errors in the scientific identification of tree species, proof, if there is one, of how much they relied on Warani knowledge. Not knowing whether morphal species were being lumped together or whether some species were known under different names because of an inherently difficulty in differentiating species on the basis of visual cues, or even because of the unevenness in use or knowledge distribution, they simply recorded all the names as spelled by Warani collaborators. Another reason they gave me is that their field assistants had explained that different spellings reflect differences in pronunciation as well as dialectical differences. I was told by several Warani who had collaborated in the survey that differences could simply be on on key, and that means for nothing, an expression often used when someone wishes to express the fact that there is no cause for explanation whether because the event has occurred naturally, as opposed to having been provoked by, or signaling the intervention of a spiritual force, or because individual variation is normal, therefore doesn't require any explanation. Finally, all variations were kept because it was decided by the scientists that Warani field workers should be led to write the names down as they wished, as perhaps a source of scientific data for future research on interpersonal variation. To me, this is a clear example of how this botanical study, despite its being cast in an epistemology remote from Warani ways of knowing, nevertheless bears traces of Warani knowledge practices. I was subsequently able to use the rigorous and systematic classification so produced to document lexical encoding of ecological and phenological relations in Warani language. Now I'm going to speak about the second example, Makushi manioc diversity. Natural scientists interested in the evolutionary ecology of domestication do not posit a radical separation between people and the environment. On the contrary, they take cultivators as the most important part of the biotic environment of crop plants. And I organized um, last December with a team of colleagues from France a very, very interesting meeting with colleagues from here, from Oxford, from archaeology and plant science in particular, where we did work specifically on that issue. Uh, and I hope to be writing the article coming out of this uh, workshop very soon. When they say that ecology, the interactions among cultivators, plants, and environments have shaped the process of domestication, they mean that cultivators, with their knowledge, decisions, preferences, and actions, represent the most important mutualists of the biological populations under domestication. Almost like any anthropological project, this research started as an experiment resulting from serendipity and chance encounters. In other words, 
The research design followed on from, rather than preceded, the being there in the field. Doyle, who had worked all his life in Africa, where he had become fascinated with the evolution of anti-herbivore chemical differences in a major tropical crop, manioc, was looking for a South American site where indigenous communities were cultivating it as their main crop and where wild manioc was known to abound. Marianne, who had a passion for genetics and evolutionary biology, but also for human cultures and music, was looking for a funding a funded doctoral research position. I mean, Marianne did a PhD on this manual project, and I have a doctoral student from this department, Louis, who is currently continuing the research now, he's in the field. But Marianne now is a, a professor at the uh, Museum of Natural History in Paris, and she works on uh, the diversity of mimetism among butterflies. In the meantime, she's worked on several other things, but it's just to prove you that she's a geneticist before. Having done my doctoral research with hunters and gatherers with only a minimal interest in crops, I was interested in working with great cultivators, hopefully of bitter manioc, and had already established contact with the Makushi in southern Guyana. The three of us were first new to the area where we had agreed to collaborate. Our research goals were different, but complementary. The research on manioc varietal diversity was sufficiently broad and interdisciplinary to provide a holistic examination of many of the factors at play in crop domestication, such as the interplay between environmental pressures and cultivators' preferences for certain cultivars, or that between clonal propagation and sexual reproduction. Ethnographic documentation and participant observation were designed to play an important role, even if the anthropological part was curtailed for, for reasons independent from our original intentions. I had originally a doctor, doctoral student who was going to work along Marianne, but for, she got married, she got in love with someone, got married, left. And it took me 10 years to find somebody else to replace her, i.e. Louis, who is now hopefully uh, well enough to continue because it's tough to work in these places and Louis has got a delicate uh, constitution and had to come back last December because he was terribly ill. He got dengue fever after three weeks in the field and anyway, he's all right now. As field research was designed to last as long as an average ethnographic field work, personal relationships also came to play an important role. Moreover, Makushi villagers showed an eagerness to collaborate in projects documenting their natural environment, which I have rarely found elsewhere, and Louis has already written about that. Um, he found the same. Literally, literate and savvy participants in regional markets and national politics, they were welcoming and friendly from the start. Well, with the wine, it was very, very difficult to establish any relationship. It took me about eight months in the field before I could get that kind of friendly, friendly trust, trustworthy relation. Fieldwork started with a particular focus on toxicity, and we soon began to collect the manioc varieties we cultivated. In these first weeks of collaborative fieldwork, there was much knowledge exchange between the evolutionary biologist in training and the anthropologist. 
By helping Marianne wear the tubers and calculate the cyanogenic content, I learned a few lab techniques, while Marianne, curious by nature, learned the open-minded participant observation way of knowing by being there. The number of stories and anecdotes we exchanged at night about what we had seen and done during the day grew, along with our familiarity with the community, and no doubt the same iterative process was taking place among our hosts. Marianne, who already knew Portuguese, was quickly acquiring the colorful English spoken in Riwa. The villagers being as keen to teach us as what they remembered of their language as they were to garden and fish, we quickly built up a basic Makushi vocabulary. Soon, we had visited most kitchens, helped in peeling, grating, squeezing, and toasting manioc, lent a hand in preparing fields for the next planting season, sang Makushi French and Latin American songs along with our hosts, written down myths and oral histories, assembled a collection of manioc varieties, learning their names and their phenotypic characteristics, and mapped a few gardens. It is during these initial visits that Marianne became intrigued by the number of seed-seeded, self-seeded plants present in the fields. To me, their presence was certainly not as exciting as that of the magic plants that the Makushi Kolbina, and uh, Lewis wrote his master's dissertation on them. What captivated my attention was rather the fact that manioc clones were planted facing east in all the fields I had visited, or even that wild species of palms had been left standing in the middle of manioc plantations. Still, as I learned from Marianne, the co-evolutionary significance of these seed-growing plants, called tepur puye, I began to focus my attention on exchanges of plant materials between cultivators, as well as on local understandings of growth, reproduction, and organic life. After my departure, Marianne continued to live as a welcome apprentice in Makushi manual cultivation, listening to people's advice, correcting her mistakes, and preparing and eating the produce of her work with the village families. What made her different from an ordinary ethnographic field worker was that she was recording more systematic and quantified observations along with normal activities. Her scientific attention to cultivated fields and varietal diversity was of great interest to the Makushi. They were as curious about her experimental research as she was about their cultural practices and wanted to know why she was measuring this, drawing that, and so forth. Their curiosity and interest were such that they became directly involved in preparing the experimental field and to include representatives of all the varieties existing in the village. This experimental field, therefore, became a joint collaborative project, as she recalls in a recent interview. So that's Marianne speaking, me translating it into English. I know, I have a tendency to be too Cartesian, but I had to adjust to what they were telling me, and I had to justify my choices to them. For instance, they told me, no way you can do the plantation like this. It is far too big. You will not use up all what will be produced. The manioc is going to waste. I had to make sure that all the tubers were going to be used up. 
The size of the field was based on my experimental needs, but they were cultivating it, cultivating it with me and looking after it when I was not there. I managed to eat and give away all of the tubers. Nothing got wasted. I based myself on their own perception of what they told me. My thesis is very descriptive. I made a big effort on the side of the human sciences. I love when she says that. <laughs> Not only were the villagers subjecting Marianne to endless questioning, but they were also commenting to each other on the, her activities or on the way she was choosing and combining varieties, wondering, for instance, why she was planting variety X next to variety Y, etc. It is through such critical commentary, guidance, and interest that Marianne came to make the scientific discoveries contained in her doctoral thesis, and they are major discoveries. The Makushi perfectly understood that Marianne was involved in a control experiment, and although they did not fully know what she was looking for, the experiment mattered to them. It would, of course, be very useful to have also an ethnographic account of Marianne's experimental research with genetic markers in the lab. And that's where I would love to have a new doctoral student because Marianne is no longer doing that, but there are lots of other um, uh, students who are continuing all this genetic marking uh, from manioc diversities and from other clone plants from the project um, in which I was collaborating. The story of the interactions and relationships between plants and people over time and space, like that of biodiversity, has been overwhelmingly framed in terms of genetic change and its phenotypic expression as traced through genomic research using machines to extract information that can be read only by other machines. But to what extent is molecular biology a reliable tool to document the science of the concrete? In addition to the kind of issues raised by science and technology studies researchers, and here I think of the work of uh, Andrew Pickering, for example, regarding the making of science, a number of conceptual issues regarding the kind of diversity identified in the lab and in the field require ethnographic scrutiny. We need to examine how scientists constitute crop diversity at the genetic, genotypic, and phenotypic levels. A variety means something different for a geneticist, an agronomist, a plant breeder, or a cultivator. Whereas field ethnobotany seeks to understand the perceptions and the practices of communities of cultivators, field ecology seeks to characterize the environments in which plants grow and reproduce. As for genetics, practiced in the lab, it seeks to characterize diversity and explain its dynamism. Many questions regarding the connection between these different levels of reality remained unexamined. And now I'm going to talk about my third example. So I hope you're still with me. This one is about indigenous agroecologies, and it takes us back to the Warani, but a different village from the one of the first example. And I'm going to show you pictures of all this after. I've decided that if I show you the pictures after I talk, you might form a picture in your mind, one, and second, you might try to listen to me a bit more. <laughs> 
My third example involves an action research experiment of the kind practiced by farmer-to-farmer -farmer networks. Such research seeks to break down the divisions between cultivator, cultivator experts, and scientists, the aim being to co-produce knowledge through collaborative approaches to research and through the use of such knowledge to create change. So that is something that has a lot to do with uh, agricultural research in development studies, for example. The experiment described below took place in 2008, I can't believe it's so long, <laughs> in Tonian Pari, the largest and most ethnically mixed Warani village. In addition to the villagers who participated and myself, it involved Armando, and this is not his real name, I want to say, a Mayan agroecologist agro who was visiting seed-saving projects through Ecuador and had accepted the village's invitation to come and demonstrate his cultivation techniques. Like in Kewerono, motivation and availability were determinant factors in the project's success, but so too were the unknown culture and status of the Mayan expert. It was the very, very first time that a Warani saw a Mayan, you know. They saw Americans all the time, but seeing indigenous people from other countries is absolutely unique to them. So Tonyan Pari villagers reacted to Armando's exotic presence not only through intense curiosity, and as a result, an even greater desire to exchange knowledge than I observed in Kewerono, but also by spontaneously appointing an expert of their own, Pa, and this is his real name, to be his direct counterpart in the experiment. I had known Pa for a very long time. To me, he was one of the last great warriors who had participated in the raid against the missionaries in 1956. My conversations with him over the years had always been about warfare and hunting. I had no idea that he was regarded by his community as an elder with special gardening knowledge. And I have a doctoral student, an Ecuadorian doctoral student, who is finishing a thesis on how Warani knowledge of domestic uh, cultivated plants has changed in the last 20 years. Uh, she's at the Museum of Natural History in Paris because that's where she could get the grant, and this is why I'm supervising her from Oxford in Paris rather than her being here with us. Pa had many garden plots scattered around Tonian Paris in which he used a simple form of crop rotation. Unlike common Warani practice, he divided his plot in two halves, planting bananas and plantain in one half and manioc in the other. Pa told us that he had learned this technique from Nemo, and Nemo is the name that the Warani have given to Rachel Sant, the uh, early missionary who worked with them. I mean, Rachel's brother was killed by Pa, actually, and Rachel is buried in, uh, in Tonian Pari. And she was called Nemo, that means star in Warani. And so he told us that he had learned this technique from Nemo and a giri, which means a relatives, and by that he means all these other foreigners who were visiting 
Rachel sent uh, while she was living in Tony and Paris. And then this is a quote from him. She, she would sit in the evenings with us. And he was telling that not to me, but to Armando. Huh? She would sit in the evenings with us, lecturing us on how to live better, how to live well with our families, how to grow our own food, and how to pray to God the Creator. I mean, for a very long time, I thought that God the Creator was, you know, um, cultural change in, in, in Warani culture, that the, it's the missionary who had used their old myths and had transferred them, I trans, had transformed them, had tweaked around with them to make them understand the story of the Bible, but now I don't think this is the case. Pa and Armando became friends, and the pair led all the activities that we undertook throughout the project, walking in front of us when visiting plantations and forest groves, and facing each other when talking to us in the demonstration plot. Armando, who always addressed Pa with much respect and deference, referred to him as El Pastor, the priest, in conversations with me. The nickname signaled his gentle, ironic take on the one his evangelization by the Summer Institute of Linguistics and his perception of Pa as both a traditional and a modern spiritual leader. Armando's relationship with the owner of the house where we were staying was, by contrast, rather distant. Our host, half Warani and half Kichwa, was the school caretaker. Each morning during our stay, while Pa was, would organize field visits and facilitate Armando's improvised agroecological course, he would busy himself around the school compound in his impeccable white overall, a cylinder of herbicide latched on his back, meticulously applying the land management techniques he had seen used around oil camps and North American housing estates. Through body language, polite but without warmth, Armando and the school caretaker clearly signal, signal to everyone a mutual lack of approbation for each other's methods. The caretaker's son, a part-time teacher in the school, had volunteered to translate between Spanish and Warani during the group visits, leaving me to tag along as a participating learner and a witness. Every evening after dinner, I could enjoy being a fly on the wall while villagers could crowd in the caretaker's vast, stilted house to see Armando, hear his stories, and watch DVDs of karate, etc., etc., that Casey uh, High has written about. Armando, who had never been in the Amazon region before, had a long experience documenting plant associations, comparing various Mesoamerican agricultural practices, and experimenting with different traditions to see which one produces the best results for a particular community. The field visits he, the Mayan expert, guided along with Pa, the Warani expert, led to animated conversations about soil color and texture, mulching, numbers of harvests, cultivation techniques, etc., etc. The level of interest in an engagement grew when the cultivation of maize and peanuts was discussed. Okay, I'm going to leave. 
maybe to not to give you all the details of that, but basically what I'm trying to say in this part of uh, the description is that Armando, of course, is a maize grower. Maize is central to his culture. Um, the, the wine, he cultivates peanuts, and Elizabeth has written on the importance of peanuts among Amazonian mm. cultures. And so uh, Armando was developing a demonstration plot. He was trying to explain to them how to plant things better so they would grow better in the kind of very poor soils they have. And the, the Warani were absolutely in disagreement with him on what he was proposing about the peanuts. While, um, you know, they might accept what he was saying about maize, they recognized his expertise there. Definitely, they were the uh, peanut experts and they were making fun of him, basically. Um, and um, what else do I say here? Oh, let me read that because that's funny. Okay. Two days before he was due to leave, Armando distributed the seeds he had carefully selected in various market towns on his way to Tonian Pari to those who wanted them. He had brought different varieties of beans, soya, lowland corn, peanuts, and other food crops he was unfamiliar with, as they were anywhere, such as chochos, an Andean lupine that grows at 3,000 meters above sea level. Villagers crowded, curious and intrigued. Celia, who was as mischievous in her 40s as she had been in her late teens when I was living with her during my doctoral fieldwork, laughed and said in a mother tongue that Warani people do not like beans, like you foreigners seem to do. She would take the seeds being offered, she added, not to plant them, but to make a big stew that with a bit of hope, her dogs may accept eating. Everyone laughed and jokes fused in typical Warani style. Later on, Armando demonstrated the plant association and crop rotation system he was proposing to use. He explained the planting design in the shape of a sparrow like a curled snake, which should reduce labor while maximizing soil and water conservation and an animated conversation broke out among the villagers. So that's why I'm not reading about them disagreeing about how to plant the peanuts. The agroecology demonstration plot was turning into a tournament between maize and bean and peanut growers. And I became vividly aware of the fact that cultivating crops involves forms of experimentation that are never fully divorced from identity politics. It is on the last day of Armando's visit, however, that I fully grasp the dynamic play of identity and difference that inter-ethnic experimental fieldwork generates. In the morning, as we waited on the airstrip for Armando's plane, we heard that one of Pa's older relatives had been bitten by a snake. She was lying in a hammock, fighting for her life. It took me some time to interpret the many versions of the accident, unravel and make sense of the basic facts, and had the school caretaker to radio call the plane ambulance. Early that morning, around 5 a.m., the old woman had set off to a fallowed garden plot on top of a hill to plant the seeds Armando had given her when she was attacked by a bushmaster. The snake bit her right hand as soon as she started clearing the bush. 
I walked from the airstrip to the woman's house, holding hands with Dayuma, Tonyan Paris' founding member and most respect, respected authority. Dayuma had learned, uh, had taught Rachel Sand how to speak Warani, and she's a key person in introducing um, um, evangelical Christianity to the Warani people. I saw the swollen hand hanging out of the hammock, stood by and prayed aloud in Spanish. I have no idea why I did this, except that I felt like the right, I felt, no, sorry, except that it felt like the right thing to do at the time. It is as if I felt responsible for the accident, and as if coming with Dayuma, who had been instrumental in introducing Christianity to Warani land and prayer, were actions of the same force and efficiency as calling the ambulance. Dayuma discussed various medical and practical arrangements with the husband and the son of the woman who had been bitten by the snake. Hundreds of questions were burning my mouth, but of course, this was not the right time to ask about Warani beliefs and practices. The husband was upset and I was feeling guilty. He wanted to accompany his wife to the hospital. I offered to pay his and his son's trip. He thanked me with a smile. Dayuma's arthritis started to get very painful again, and she asked me to whip her with stinging nettles, which is normal Warani remedy. I returned to the hair strip, where Armando seemed unduly relaxed and calm. How could he not worry about the fate of the snake bite's victim? He simply told me to tell people that permanent garden plots need to be protected from snakes and rodents by a hedge made of cutting lemongrass. There's plenty growing in the village, he added. People are, are already using lemongrass to protect themselves from mosquitoes. In his softest voice, he then said that there was nothing surprising in the accident, as it had occurred on the death day of the Mayan calendar. And one day after the snake day, which was the day when the demonstration plot had been planted. Now, Armando has got a master's degree in anthropology. Uh, he speaks current English and Spanish. He's a well-known scientist in his own country, but of course he is also a Mayan, and the Mayan calendar is part of his belief system. Planting activates the forces and energies that are being shifted when something new is introduced, he told me. So I'm going to stop reading here, and now I'm going to show you a few slides. The first example that I read you about, um, I have written, so you know, there is a chapter in a book, and this is a reference, so you can have a look at it if you want. And this is a picture of the westernmost part of the Warani land, and it's just to illustrate the fact that being at the foothill of the Andes, um, you know, it's, it's a region of, of extreme biodiversity and 
very, very special in uh, ecological terms. Yeah? So this is not Kewerono, but it's to illustrate how quite a number of Warani now are very involved with various conservation projects. So this is Toka, he's from another village, but I've been working with them recently. And, you know, he works with, uh, you know, with his computer and he's trying to design a conservation area for his village. And all that is absolutely his own initiative. Um, he was trained in ecotourism, he traveled a bit around, he's a very strong evangelical believer as well. Um, and he just, you know, he has been exposed to lots of ideas and he's decided that the best thing for his community is to map, you know, boundaries and to create a conservation area. And this is his father and his uncle. And we were measuring, you know, um, as I said, doing trails, etc., etc., with his uh, conservation biologists who came to visit him, and they were telling myths um, as we were posing a few minutes. So you see the two are completely intermingled all the time. These are pictures that were taken by Moy, one of my oldest informants, and he took these pictures and he sent them to me. This is the death of his father, Niame, who is as old as Pa, you know, he's part of his old generation of warriors, and I ha I'm also writing about these new death rituals that they have invented, uh, which are very, of course, and, well, are they warring or not? This is a question. Anyway, uh, the second example on Makushi, the best, I have written quite a lot on this, but the best article for what I was saying is this one in current anthropology, and here, there are not very good pictures. Was, you know, I didn't have a digital camera when I was doing this work. But you see here how the, uh, there are mounds and how the sticks, the manioc sticks, as the Makushi say, are all facing east in this way. And I was obviously fascinated by everything magical, everything ritualistic. My eyes were only open for that. And uh, I was really trying to find a theory of why they had to face east, etc., etc., and questioning people around these things. Huh? And here's it's Makushi material culture. I mean, some of these things are in the museum, in the Petrivers Museum, uh, part of Audrey Bert Colson's collection, because she was working with the Akawayo, and they are quite similar to the Makushi. They are part of the same payment uh, groups, if you want an extraordinary material culture. You know, the technique of uh, processing manioc is, is absolutely amazing. And I am now uh, starting a project with some colleagues where we're going to use um, the French approach to material culture called la chaîne opératoire to try to um, look into that into more detail because the conclusion of my article, my current anthropology article, is that the Makushi do not domesticate the plant in the field, but they domesticate it in the kitchen. So I think it's that kind of relationship between the cultivation and the processing that I'm trying to now understand, if you want, through using these ideas coming from Pierre Lemonnier, etc., who is coming to visit soon, uh, etc. Okay, so the third example, I haven't 
quite written about it yet, but let me show you a few pictures. I mean, that's Tonyan Pari. I mean, just I could spend a whole hour just talking about Tonyan Pari, you know. Uh, this book was written in uh, 1961. Uh, the Warani around 1950s in Tonyan Pari had a long house of its kind. Um, these houses are still now made by the uncontacted Warani who are living in, um, as you know, they are a group of Warani who refuse contact. Uh, and they are, you know, but because we have satellites and airplanes, etc., etc., we have photographed their, their, you know, they are hiding in the forest, but where they are is exactly known and, and their houses have been photographed. And I have to go there in April but because there are lots of um, conflicts and problems with oil companies going into the um, protected area where the non-contacted Warani are living. But you see, Tonyan Pari between, in 60 years, has gone from this to this. Um, so that's a school compound. Uh, this is the school caretaker who I was telling you about, who goes all over the place with his herbicides. Unfortunately, I didn't take a picture of him with his white overall, but it's extraordinary. You know, the way he put it, it's, it's like seeing um, a French engineer going into a nuclear plant. You know, it's, it's really amazing. So uh, this is Livio, his son, who was doing the translation. And this, community, this is a community center. This is their new community <coughs> center. And their community center looks like a, a warehouse for planes. They have had this idea. So you see, there is a reason. Because look, it looks like a, a longhouse. It does have the shape of a longhouse. And they managed to get the money. That has cost something like $400,000 or maybe even more. And they got the money from, um, uh, from a fund, a government fund called Ecorai, which is supposed to spend 10% of the oil revenues within the Amazon region. Why? Because they think that if they do this massive longhouse, they are going to become a municipality. That means they want this Warani village to be on the state map with a different kind of budgeting, etc. Well, I could say a lot more, but I'm just trying to. <laughs> but I have to say another, because you know, I know you're interested in material culture. I have to say, I haven't put the slide, but the, fa the fantastic thing is that, that's the airstrip, right? So just here from the airstrip, there is a bench. And every day at uh, 10 past three exactly, 10 past three exactly, you have a bunch of 20 Warani sitting on this bank or hanging around the bank. Why? Uh, with mobile phones. <laughs> Why? Because they have worked out through trial and error that the satellite <laughs> passes above the village of Astab, and this is the only time they can phone their mates in the jungle town. Otherwise, there is no communication. <laughs> they have worked that out themselves. I find that fantastic, you know. <laughs> anyway, this is Armando uh, with uh, Livio and Pa. Okay, uh, and this is... Uh, pa explaining his uh, polyculture system and um, etc. And here we distribute the seeds. 
And now I want to finish uh, talking about fieldwork expertise and distributed knowledge, which is the kind of theoretical issues, if you want, I'm dealing with in this paper. So, uh, in the theoretical part of the paper, um, I explain that we need to study uh, environmental knowledge in a different way. I mean, as you know, there is a whole body of literature on um, traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous knowledge, etc., etc., and there are lots of problems with this body of literature, and I'm trying to uh, engage with it and to come up with a better theory, if you want. And I'm doing that by using, in particular, those uh, four uh, authors in this particular paper. Of course, I start with Kirsten Hasrup, because I think her paper is very interesting to uh, discuss issues of fieldwork. What do we call fieldwork? What kind of knowledge comes out of fieldwork? Um, it has to do with understanding through participation and the fact that evidence is, is related to experience. But what I'm trying to say in my paper is that uh, these natural scientists I've been working with, uh, what Kirsten Asrup says exactly applies to them as well. Uh, so in that sense, I can call them ethnographers if you want. Then, of course, I engage with Bath and, uh, you know, his call for comparative ethnographies of knowledge, um, how different ways of knowing coexist and what we should do about that. So I'm re-engaging those ideas. But then I also, you know, I mean, this is a colleague here in the Said Business School who has written a very important thing on social science and how we can make social science matter in uh, decision-making. And this is what he's trying to convince his colleague in the Science Business School to do. But I think that his ideas, you know, of revisiting Aristotelian philosophy by showing that there is not just epistemic or episteme or techne, but there is also phronesis, um, is one way of approaching knowledge that is very complementary to the Balfian uh, approach. And, um, and, and I make great use of, of, of these ideas here. And then uh, Scott Atron and uh, Douglas Medin, uh, um, cognitive anthropologist and, and a cognitive psychologist, have done very important work on variable and pattern distribution of knowledge within and between cultural groups. And what I do in my paper is to explain why their approach um, enables us to revisit the critique of ethnobiology and ethnoclassification and to show that the critiques are wrong. So basically, I'm trying in this paper to show that, um, you know, ethnobiology and all the ethnosciences rather than being dumped into the dustbin, as quite a number of anthropologists are trying to do now, have something very, very serious to say about uh, the nature of knowledge um, about nature, if you want me to say it that way. And social anthropology is best seen as a form of expert knowledge, right? because the work of Medin and Atron is very important because they talk about not just cultural knowledge, 
and how cultural knowledge is distributed, but one of the aspects of that is expert knowledge. And what I claim in my paper is that as social anthropologists, we are experts. And we are experts, but our expertise is very good for phronesis, for example, if you want to use a Flitsch-Verbian approach, but it's not very good for techne. Huh? So because we are experts in the social, we are blind to the techne, and this is why, you know, people can ditch, um, ethno, you know, ethno classifications as something unimportant to understand human culture. And then I do a critique in this paper of the ontologists who tend to focus on intercultural misunderstandings rather than on the channels that allow intergroup communication or the possible reasons for communication failures. My paper, I hope, has illustrated that <coughs> there is communication between natural scientists and indigenous people. It's not a matter of not communicating. So here, I'm extremely critical of Ellen Veron, and, you know, who has several papers about uh, scientists collaborating with aborigines in Australia, where she tries to show that the scientists don't understand anything um, about you know the culture of the aborigines, and then they they talk past each other if you want, right? Okay, so let me just write the conclusion maybe so I can write that properly, and then we'll be done. Much has been done in the last twenty years to undo the nature-culture dualism seen by many anthropologists and other social theorists as the central and most difficult Western dualism to break down. A number of anthropologists have taken on the task of unraveling the double abstraction, each developing a distinctive theory of how to go about it. It is not my purpose here to offer an analysis of the profound disagreements that have begun to appear between various approaches. My purpose, rather, has been to attend to what I see as a shared rejection of ethno-ecology as a body of work which subverts the ecology of others. That's a book that Philippe Descola has published last year. Either because it neglects ecology as experience through direct engagement with the world, and I see that as a team in gold tech on it, or because it analyzes ecology according to an objectification of nature which is profoundly Western which is what Philip has to say about it, or because it relies on a dualist ontology that necessarily obfuscates native categories, and that would be Marilyn Sravian's critique. What anthropologists critical of ethnoecology find most objectionable in the studies this discipline has produced is it purported lack of attention to the relational and interactive nature of knowledge. Ethnoecology is first rejected for not attending to the ways in which modes of knowing may be organized and acted upon in ways that do not presuppose a natural order existing independently from an externally to a cultural order. Said differently, ethnoecology is criticized for imposing the double reification of nature and culture onto integrated local knowledge systems. Ethnoecology would impose a Western scientific and outmoded way of ordering the, the world, 
Some critics even argue that recent progress in theoretical biology has rendered ethnobiology ontologically obsolete. That's the critique that Philippe Descola is doing uh, at the moment, and by doing that, he criticizes this book and all of Claude Lévi-Strauss for being a naturalist. Uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss is... Um, has to be re-evaluated. He was using a naturalist ontology that did not let room for other ontologies. This paper has shown the range of possibilities offered by ethnobiology as a multidisciplinary field addressing central questions about the character of culture, language, cognition, knowledge, and human existence by focusing on how different expert and cultural communities come to know about ecological systems and biological diversity. The three examples selected for this purpose illustrate how indigenous knowers actively seek to educate scientists about certain plants and animals relate to each other and grow together. In the three cases, we find the same indigenous desire to share with knowledgeable others what has been learned from immersed observation and focused attention to growth and maturation processes, as well as the same keenness to learn new ways of doing things or thinking about them. Knowledge that can only be learned through doing is most meaningfully discussed through the co-performance of embodied skills with other practitioners. Indigenous people are to a greater or lesser extent expert knowers who enjoy interacting with other experts through field experiments. As a result, fieldwork necessarily involves exchanges of as well as changes in knowledge. The collective production of new knowledge through experimentation fosters forms of creativity that are not necessarily linked to metaphysical speculation. There is more in common between the way natural scientists and indigenous expert knower think about the world than is commonly recognized. Ecology is relational in a way often ignored or dismissed by contemporary social-cultural anthropology. Anthropologists are not trained to see the implicit properties of the biophysical environment which indigenous knowers acquire through direct and prolonged immersion and which form an integral part of their world. Such tacit knowledge can be revealed as skilled reasoning for field experiments that facilitate verbal communication between members of different epistemic communities. Documenting the making of science through field encounters, providing that time in the field is long enough for mutual relationships to develop, facilitates the anthropologist's biological education while tempering the biases of sociocentric expertise. It has been my contention that there is more to field encounters than epistemic disconcertment between two parties, each committed to its own orthodox framing, one holding knowledge as a representation of the world, the other as enactment of the world. We, therefore, need a theory of knowledge that does not exaggerate the gap between indigenous and Western science, while recognizing that human knowledge is generatively heterogeneous, 
We also need to multiply studies of field encounters between experts who question the division between science with a big S and the science of the concrete by bridging different kinds of knowledge and reworking them into new syntheses, which it can only be hoped will move science with a big S away from anthropocentric humanism. Thank you.